There are like six people here. <laughs> Does it sound okay, Ryan? Okay. All right. So historically, I have not been a person that cares much about sports. I'm not good at sports. I don't understand many sports. Competition makes me uncomfortable. So I typically avoid sports in all forms. But this spring, while I was most often doing some sort of schoolwork, the Women's March Madness Tournament Championship, I, I don't even know what word to use for it, <laughs> was what was on television most of the time. So during breaks or when I would get done with my reading or writing, I would watch basketball. And the coverage of the games included interviews with players and coaches, their histories, pointing out their families in the stands. And y'all, something happened to me. <laughs> While I still do not understand basketball <laughs> or most sports, I cared about this tournament. <laughs> and when it got to the final game, I knew who I wanted to win, and I definitely knew who I didn't. The final was between Arizona and Stanford, and I was rooting for Arizona, mostly because of one of their players, senior Ari McDonald, who I thought was just great. <laughs> she always had a smile on her face. She was positive. She cared about her teammates. She was clearly beloved by coach uh, Adia Barnes who played on that same team when she was in college and came back to coach after her stint in the WNBA. Listen to all the stuff I know about basketball. <laughs> it was just clear she worked so hard. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, even though I don't know much about basketball, I would watch these games and I could tell that Ari was good. And then there was Stanford. Not just the opposing team, but in my mind, legitimate villains. <laughs> this is possibly fueled by my own disappointment that I did not get to go to an Ivy League school, but mostly because after watching one of their players, whose name I refuse to commit to memory, was mean in every game <laughs> leading up to this tournament. The first time I watched her be mean to someone, she knocked her down and then stood over her and yelled at her. And I was like, that is unsportsmanlike and rude, and I don't like you at all. And so I just called her Blondie Pigtails the rest of the tournament. <laughs> Even though she was also clearly good and apparently uh, Stephen Curry's goddaughter. But I was done. <laughs> I feel like worked up even telling this story. <laughs> so the final game of this tournament comes, and it's like, close the whole time. Like, it's like a really good game to watch. And I can say that even though I don't know about basketball. And in those last moments, I can see that Ari is like desperate because Arizona has been just behind Stanford the whole time. Like, they fall behind and then they catch up. They fall behind and they catch up. And it's like the last moments. And I see that she is desperate because they're all of a sudden just out of time. And as the buzzer sounds, she just throws the ball from half court and misses like by that much. Stanford wins 54-53 and I started to cry. <laughs> I was overcome <laughs> with despair for Ari who was graduating and would never get to play in this tournament again and it didn't matter how many times I was told she was headed to the WNBA 
because this game felt so important. I was just so sad it was over. And I would never watch this team play basketball again. And at that moment, I thought I would watch this team play basketball every day for the rest of my life, which is crazy, because I still think I probably couldn't care less about my <laughs> basketball. <laughs> oh. This will make sense later. OK. <laughs> Today, we are going to continue our journey through Ephesians. We started last week in the first chapter where Paul reminds us that we, like the Ephesians, are chosen created and adopted into the sacred family. This week, we're going to keep looking at Paul's letter and what it might mean to be a part of the family, which may or may not be illustrated by a newfound love of college basketball. If you would like to follow along, you can turn to Ephesians 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. This is Wibbly. The Wibbly's fans. Okay. As always, I'm reading from the NRSV version, but you can read from whatever version you'd like. Chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, and made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not, a, not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what we, he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of the Lord. So when I um, start, I, I feel like I tell you guys about this time in my life all the time. When I started going to church in middle school, like eighth grade, the first things I was taught in Sunday school were memorization exercises. And the first thing I had to memorize was John 3.16. I don't know if anybody else, I feel like a lot of people had to do this, but we only read King James Version, so it sounded like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe within him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then I had to memorize the books of the Bible, which I had to do my first semester of seminary, but they taught us a fun song to do it. But when I had to do it at 14, there was no song. You just had to list them. And that's when I learned that Nehemiah was not pronounced Nehemiah. <laughs> the third thing I had to memorize was Ephesians 2.8. But it sounded like this when I did it. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And at the time, I remember... Um, being told that this verse was very important to remember because it was our evidence against the argument of being saved by works. And I come from a really small Catholic farm town, and I think my pastor thought that like my friends that were Catholic were trying to constantly convert me to Catholicism. They weren't. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> and so while the argument that no works are necessary might be supported, 
in this verse, it just didn't make sense that this was like constantly being pushed into my head. And in retrospect, I think it's pretty narrow, um, like interpretation of the verse. It's also the verse that inspired the acronym I was taught for grace, which is God's riches at Christ's expense. Because it's by grace that we are saved. Jesus' death on the cross, not our own payment. And once that was done, all I had to do was believe it, and the deal was complete. And that's just never really been satisfying to me. I think maybe because I'm a pretty historically naive person, and so I believe a lot of things at the jump, and then I get disappointed. So belief and faith alone like that just feels kind of like a trap. Maybe it's because I am like a person that always tries to follow the rules. And so if I'm following the rules, but somebody else isn't, and they also get this benefit that I have worked so hard for, then I become a really petty person. It's probably likely that one more than the first one. (laughs) But I still think maybe we're missing the point. Matthew Bates, a professor of theology at Notre Dame and author of Salvation by Allegiance Alone, seems to agree, though, that to settle on faith or belief um, is pretty unsatisfactory and a poor way to understand this particular text. He argues that we've not really actually done a very good job of translating Paul's letter and that our modern understanding of faith or belief, when we read verse 8 specifically, isn't correct. Rather, the Greek word that is translated to faith here, pistis, pistis, thank you, Melissa, should actually be translated to allegiance. And I will be the first to admit that that makes me uncomfortable. I don't love the word allegiance. The first association I have is the Pledge of Allegiance, which I, yeah, well, uh, that's for later. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The word takes me back to thinking of structures that I have begun to really understand that aren't belonging in this story. But I also began to wonder if allegiance was still appropriate, even for the ways that I think of God that are clearly different from even Mr. Bates, the author of the book. I may not use language like king for God or Jesus. Maybe some others don't, and maybe some do. But either way, I think the suggestion of allegiance for this passage as the correct translation for Pistis works well for the evolving understanding of God, too. If I begin with the understanding of God being a God that is within all things, and I might say, after taking an intensive on eco-justice last week, that even non-human things belong in that um, definition. I think that having allegiance to God is much more um, in that sense than just having allegiance to a God that feels ethereal or like unnamed or unseen, like what I was taught. This idea that we are related to all things because of the presence of God in all things Sorry, a bug just flew on my face. That is the foundation of my personal theology, and it feels like allegiance can still absolutely be important because it would require the embodied participation of relationship to all members of creation, a commitment of loyalty to the vessels of God that I encounter each and every day. And there are undoubtedly a thousand resources and discussions on exactly what this might look like, but I'm not going to list them because I think the ways that we as family members in this divine kingdom all bring our own varied and unique perspectives and gifts 
needs and desires. But I do think this passage tells us or gives us a clue as to what it doesn't look like. Faith or allegiance in this passage seems to be the opposite of death, according to Paul. And at the beginning of the passage, when you look at the Greek word for faith, when I was looking at the Greek word for faith, faith, I also came across the Greek word for disobedience in the second verse, which is apatheus. Apatheus. Any guesses as to what that might translate to today? Apathy. <laughs> it's almost too simple. <laughs> A word that literally means without feeling. So the opposite of faith is the absence of feeling. The opposite of allegiance is the absence of feeling. Without feeling, we cannot love cannot recognize when we ourselves are loved. Paul is suggesting that our disobedience is apathy. And he says that we were dead through trespasses and sin. We were dead through whatever it was that was keeping us from feeling, keeping us from knowing love for and from God, that this lack of feeling can lead us to behave in any way that might make us feel anything, even if it harms us and others. But we are so loved, even when that is the case. And so we are reached by and made alive by Christ. Something I found particularly interesting was that coming alive with Christ would lead us from disobedience to immeasurable riches. And I wondered if disobedience was apathy or the lack of feeling are immeasurable riches feelings? I know that sounds cringy to the fives that are here today, but I think it's possible. <laughs> because without feeling, we may struggle for connection. The ability to feel loved allows us to love. To have the foundation of the love of God allows us to love others where God is present. And when we love something, we find ourselves committed to it, loyal to it, we have allegiance to it. We are no longer able to be apathetic. Kind of like when a non-sports fan gets attached to a team in March Madness and some mystical thing happens and they become Arizona's biggest fan. I don't think that this is a challenge for us to feel strongly about every single little thing. There are still things that I'm pretty apathetic about. Like, unless Ari McDonald starts playing golf, I'm probably not going to care much about golf. But some people love golf, and that's important. My allegiance to Arizona women's basketball has not created within me a loyalty even to basketball or all sports as a whole. And I don't think this passage is telling us that having allegiance to God is to have big and strong feelings about everything. That's impossible even for me. What we should take away from Paul today is that indifference, apathy, can lead to suffering and death. And that allegiance to God is part of what gives us life. And that sounds like a very traditional and evangelical take that maybe we don't say very often. Maybe that's where Paul wants to keep it. But it doesn't actually feel that simple when I think about it. Allegiance to God looks like recognizing the presence of God in all created things, loving them 
is allegiance, and being loved by them is our grace. And I think that relationship is what is life-giving. Okay, if you want to open the prayer of the people. follow along with me. Merciful God, we come before you today to lift our prayers for the aching hearts across the world, for all the uncertainties that plague our hearts and minds, we pray, for those who, who continue to struggle alone in pain, sick, dying, for those at home, those in hospitals, and those who lack resources and access to health care. We lift prayers that you, God, would meet each person and friend and stranger through healthcare workers and good Samaritans. Lord, we give thanks for men all over the globe who love and care for our world. We give thanks for your provisions through those who father us and give us themselves in bringing new life. For the unimaginable number of people in Ethiopia who are famished, despairing, and dying overnight. Bring sustenance through both your creation that bears fruit and through global practices and policies that make food accessible. Confront us where we need redirected in the care of creation and our own posture toward the land and food. For our country that remains divided where rhetoric creates further division. Speak truth, move through us, and bring healing that we might stand with one another, that we might stand now on the heels of Juneteenth and joining in lamenting the history of slavery here in the United States, rejoicing over good news of freedom, celebrating black bodies and culture, and daring to labor together till earth and heaven ring with harmonies of liberty. For those who are targets of systemic injustice and for all those who have been impacted directly and indirectly by violence. Lord, may justice prevail through systemic change, through confronting the evil of oppression, we pray. Illuminate our own hatred and move us towards shalom and solidarity. For our city in which gun violence continues to increase, may you meet victims and perpetrators with your healing presence. And may the weapons wielded be transformed into tools that cultivate life, connection, and love that knows no boundaries. For the elected officials in our local and federal governments, may the Holy Spirit provide wisdom for them as they lead humbly with integrity and with human beings' best interests in mind. We lift prayers for your kingdom, Lord. For all whom the sun touches, for all who breathe the air, for all whose hearts beat, for all things of your creation. As followers of Jesus, we may be a light, may we be loved, may we be a different way of experiencing the world. As we remember your constant presence with us, gracious God, we choose to respond, to lean in, recognize you at work through that which is beautiful in our world, and to worship. 
as we remember your persistence and offering grace to us and celebrate the joy of following Jesus, we speak of the mystery we know as faith. Christ died for all our sins. Christ was raised for all. Christ comes to lead us into God's presence. Lord, we ask that as we partake of the bread and the cup, your Holy Spirit bless these gifts and transform us into your gathered people to faithfully love you and our neighbors with all our being. Let us commune at the table of the Lord. It is open for all who seek life with God. <laughs> 